Hello all, I've got a bunch of announcements. Let's start with the big one. I've been doing this podcast with a couple breaks for slightly over eight years, and I'm at the point where I'm ready to move on. It has been an absolute pleasure to bring this to you all, and I have gotten many wonderful emails over the years from people. Whether they're notes telling me that I brightened someone's day during their commute, or that they've had their life trajectories radically altered, every single message has made me a happier and more fulfilled person. Thank you all for being with me on this journey. And thank you as well to Eliezer Yudkowsky for creating the Methods of Rationality in the first place, as well as Alexander Wales and Max Harms for their works. It's been fantastic. However, just because I'm retiring doesn't mean this channel will be going offline. Which brings me to announcement number two. On this very feed, my co-host from the Bayesian Conspiracy, Stephen Zuber, will be launching a podcast of his own. He calls it We Want More, spelled M-O-R. And those of you familiar with We've Got Worm already know it's coming. Stephen will be rereading Harry Potter and the Methods of Rationality, this time with a co-host named Brian who has never read it. Stephen is a longtime fan and scholar of the work, and he'll be guiding Brian through it as they explore and analyze the seminal rationalist fiction. There will occasionally be guests as well to keep things sufficiently chaotic. It'll be an awesome ride, both for longtime fans of H.P. Moore and first-time readers. The release date isn't set yet, but it'll be sometime this year, before winter. Speaking of release dates, here's announcement number three. My debut novel, What Lies Dreaming, has released this very day and is now available for purchase. It's a story of Lovecraftian horrors set in 2nd century Rome. You can purchase the novel from any ebook seller or get a paper copy from Amazon. And... Okay, people have often asked me if there's anything they could do that would make me happy. And I always tell them they've already made me happy by taking the time to write me and tell me that they like this podcast thing I've done. But that if they want to go above and beyond and do more, the best thing they can do is tell others that may be interested about the methods of rationality about Eliezer's work. Specifically Harry Potter and the methods of rationality. That is still my stance. Helping to spread general rationality skills and raising the sanity waterline is, by far, the best and most important thing anyone could do for me. And in my opinion, for the world at large. I want to live in a better, more rational world. So please do that. If, on top of that, one wanted to do me a solid, and if they were already planning on buying What Lies Dreaming at some point anyway, I would be really grateful if they could buy it within the next six days, during the first week of release. The price is the same regardless, the book will wait around for you until you have the time to read it, and it would help me out quite a bit because of the way Amazon's algorithms work. The amount of sales soon after the release date, in particular in the first week, are much more strongly weighted when Amazon decides what to display on the you-might-also-like banners and other visibility boosts. But that's just a personal thing if you're interested. Do the spreading of rationality thing first, like, by far. Okay, for anyone still listening, I'm now going to read the first three chapters of my novel so those unfamiliar with it can see if they have any interest in going further. It's not rationalist fiction, so it doesn't really fit in this podcast. But it's mine, and that counts for something by me. I have already gotten a number of requests that I give it the podcast treatment, but honestly, I'm not really sure I have the drive to do that. However, I created a little survey, which is linked in the show notes and also at the podcast's homepage, hpmorpodcast.com. It's possible I might do one last project depending on how it goes, but... I don't know. I make no promises. To recap, this podcast is retiring. Stephen will have a new podcast soon, reading through H.P. Moore with a newbie and dissecting and analyzing it. And my new book, What Lies Dreaming, is available for purchase now. Links in the show notes and on the website, of course. Here's the first three chapters, and thank you all for making possible this long, amazing chapter of my life. What Lies Dreaming Chapter 1. Joa I needed a monster. More than food, more than family, I needed a monster this week or I was dead. Worse than just dead, in fact. I'd die screaming for the enjoyment of my betters. Somewhere in Rome, this very day, the monster that would save me waited in chains. To keep my mind from eating itself in worry, I toiled with Leyland in the Ludus Matatinus's dusty yard. 
"'Up!' I commanded him. The adolescent snow leopard rose on his hind legs, boxing the air for balance. I moved inside his reach, and he set his forelimbs on my shoulders. He had a graceful touch, almost intimate. Tall walls enclosed the lettuce compound, providing privacy for us. Its wooden gates stood closed and barred, sealed against scroungers, vagrants, and spies. The exercise yard stood at the center of a ring of buildings, expansive stables, barracks, storerooms, and a kitchen. Like most of Rome's compounds, the Ludus Matitinus could serve as a fortress in another setting. Walk, I instructed my charge. Roman crowds loved these sorts of tricks. If he mastered it, a show like this would keep Leyland alive for years. Pristine white fur, still puffy round his adolescent paws, brushed the sides of my neck. Intense cat eyes met my gaze, unblinking in concentration. I stepped back slowly, guiding the leopard in the first steps of what would someday be our dance. I moved faster as he grew used to the awkward movements. Sweat stung my eyes. The cat's muggy breath in my face compounded the heat of the day. The lotus metatinus baked under the noon sun, ripening with caged animal smell. The tiered benches of the yard's small practice arena provided no shade. Even the massive coliseum, just across the crowded street outside, wouldn't give us shade for several more hours. To my right, the door to the slave quarters creaked open. Zia, the Ludus kitchen slave, emerged into the yard, her face set in anxious worry. Her cheeks had sunk from famine, her eyes haggard. The gray hints in her dark hair had broken out into streaks. Our rations had been cut again last week. Joa, she said, approaching me. We need more food. No one will have enough tonight, and there won't be anything at all tomorrow. I patted Leyland's flank to signal him, and he dropped back onto all fours. I pulled a limp fish skeleton from a pouch to reward him. A poor treat, but there was nothing else to give. Zia eyed it enviously. Skim what you can from the feasts, I told her. The first day of public feasts began tomorrow, kicking off a celebration that would last a full week. Wine, gladiator games, and circus races during the day. Great tables filling the streets after sundown, loaded with the largesse of Rome's wealthy patricians. The food was meant for Rome's citizens first. Slaves ate from the scraps. It won't be, she started. I know, I cut her off. But I can't do anything until Titus arrives and I see how much money we have left to work with. As if summoned by his naming, three solid raps fell against the lettuce gates. My heart jumped into my throat and I cursed in Hebrew. Wagons weren't allowed to traverse the streets during daylight hours. When Titus hadn't arrived at daybreak, I assumed I wouldn't have to face him until sundown. Quick, take Leyland! I ordered Zia as the guards unbarred the doors. If Titus saw me with the snow leopard, it would mark Leyland as a target for his play. Zia took the leash dutifully and retreated to the stables at a rapid clip. Great hinges groaned as the gates parted. Titus stood just beyond them, thickly muscled arms crossed over his chest. A line of wagons trailed behind him, choking the busy streets. Even as a commander of a returning legion, he shouldn't have this much latitude. But Titus was Titus. He had a way of imposing his will on the world. Was that a smirk on his face? I couldn't quite tell from this distance, but it set my pulse hammering. Maybe he'd seen me with Leyland, seen me passing the young animal off to Zia. I didn't dare glance back to see how far they'd gotten. It would give away my fear. It would damn them both. I could only pray I'd moved quickly enough. I clenched my hands together and stepped forward to welcome my savior. He had my monster, and he had dozens of beasts. He'd brought me the victims the Romans demanded. I should be used to the sight of terrified animals by now. I've been doing this long enough. Still, I grimaced when Titus flipped back the burlap covering the first wagon once we'd brought them within the Ludus's walls. A tattered lynx crouched in the wagon's cage, pushing itself as far back as possible, hackles raised and rumbling fear. The lynx bared its teeth in a hiss. A jagged splinter festered where a dagger fang should be. Its own shit matted its right flank. Even in the pinched cages, that shouldn't happen. 
Cats avoid their own feces. To be matted in shit meant it had been sick recently. Or abused. If Titus's legionnaires were anything like Titus, it was the latter. I could see them gathering around the cage at night, taunting the animal, clubbing it for sport. They'd laugh as they ground it into its filth. In any just world, they would all die screaming under the claws of the animals they hurt. My hand tightened on my stylus as I struggled for calm. It would excite Titus to see me distressed. I swallowed impotent fury and carefully pressed a hash mark under links into my wax tablet. The links trembled in my peripheral vision. I would have it away from these monsters soon. In the expansive stables, long rows of cages awaited new occupants. Some of them would be here for months as I nursed them back to health. Before sending them to their deaths. The Ludus Matitinus trained and housed the bestiary gladiators, as well as the animals they slaughtered. I strangled the errant thought, buried its corpse deep in my mind, next to the fantasies of broken Roman bodies, and focused on my work. I want extra for this one, said Titus as we moved to the next wagon. Titus stood well over six feet tall, with rich black hair and a powerful jaw. Always a glint of malice in his smile. He loved his strength. He was the kind that grinned as he beat slaves. He'd tormented me even back when he'd been a centurion, simply for the fun of it. He never laughed, but his eyes shone with delight, and he grinned so terribly wide. I didn't want to imagine what he'd be like now that he'd made commander, of a first cohort, no less. A gagging stench billowed out as he flung back another burlap sheep. Again a lynx, again encrusted with filth and enraged. It nearly filled the cage, far larger than the previous one, snarling knives at us. Its black-spotted snowy coat would look magnificent when clean. The lynx reminded me of Titus himself, large and arrogant and angry. I added another hash mark to the lynx column, followed by a plus. Agreed, another five percent, I said. I would tell my master, Sextus, that it had been ten percent. I could use the difference to pay for the food the other slaves stole, at least for a little while longer. Titus's eyes narrowed. You'll give me no less than ten, he growled. My heart jumped into my throat. Yes, of course, ten percent. Did he know? He couldn't know. He'd been gone from Rome with the German Legion. Why the hell couldn't he just stay away? It didn't escape my notice that he still wore his sword. Within the city limits, that was a crime for all but the Emperor's private army, the Praetorian Guard. A regular soldier shouldn't have a sword, regardless of rank. Even for Titus, this was a significant breach. Either Titus had the favor of someone in power, or his cohort was here to help break the food riots. I wasn't sure which was worse. We continued across the yard, guards and wagon drivers milling about as I hurriedly confirmed delivery. More lynxes and a few bears. Between each reveal, I glanced down the line of wagons, trying to guess which one held the showpiece. The monster. I desperately needed a Nofki bear for the games this week. One of those covered wagons surely caged a gigantic six-legged bear preferably a male, with a horn jutting from its head. They were two or three times the size of a normal bear, pure white, and viciously ill-tempered. The 900th anniversary of Rome's founding required the killing of something truly extraordinary. My master, Sextus, ran the Colosseum and had promised the emperor that the final day of games would be kicked off with a monster battle. In practice, that meant I had promised the emperor a monster battle as if monsters were so easy to come by. As if I wanted to risk my life making promises to a monster. Getting to choose what to risk one's life for is a luxury only afforded to free men. My life was to be used for entertainment, one way or another, by decree. So the moment I learned the German first cohort would be recalled to Rome for the games, I promised Titus a handsome sum for a Nofki bear. He was my last chance. Another cart revealed, and again, no monster. Just some wolves, in fact. I stopped short at the wolves. 
They were ridiculously common. I didn't need special wolves brought down from Germania. Especially not in this condition. A haggard she-wolf stood growling over two emaciated pups that couldn't even make their feet. I hesitated nonetheless. Titus wouldn't take well to being denied. I swallowed and spoke, my voice straining. I can't give much for the wolves. I can give you half price for the mother and a coin each for the pups. You trying to cheat me, you little shit? His voice took a dangerous edge. Full price or nothing. I know where I can get some decent coin for this rot. I had a good idea of what awaited them if they stayed with Titus. Entertainments that not even the Colosseum would sink to, in festering chambers hidden far from any decent heart. I could spare them that. After years of faithful service, Sextus trusted me implicitly with his money. Audits had grown rare and were cursory when they did happen. I could get away with overpaying for three wolves. No, no, you're right, I said, throat tight to keep the waver from my voice. I'll pay full price for the mother and two-thirds for each pup. Titus sneered his assent and continued onward. Again, I looked down the row of wagons, growing fear tightening my chest. None of them looked big enough to house a Nofki. Maybe that one, if it was really squeezed in tight... A flip of burlap revealed that no, that one only held a large bear. And shouldn't a monster of that size be making an unholy racket? Bellows that traveled for half the city? My palms grew clammy as we passed the last wagon large enough for Agnofki, again holding a mere bear. Why hadn't Titus said anything about it yet? What was he waiting for? Another couple wolves, but I wasn't paying them attention now. My eyes fixed on the last cart, draped with burlap. It was too small. There was no way. But maybe, maybe Titus had figured something out. Maybe the cart was bigger than it looked. Or Nofki's curled up very tightly and slept very soundly. My breath caught in hope as Titus flipped the covering aside. My heart plummeted to my sandals. Titus! My throat tightened, strangling my words. This isn't what I expected. I stared down at a wretched human form chained in a dusty cart. A stunted thing, barely four feet tall with knobby joints and not a single hair upon him. Tattooed lines scrawled across wrinkled skin, cutting him into odd segments. You promised me a horned six-legged bear, I protested. I could see Titus's face grow dark, and plunging fear gave me a half-second's warning before Titus's open hand struck high across my face. The pain wasn't as bad as the humiliation, the knowledge that he could do what he wanted with me. I sucked in hot, shallow breaths. You forget your place, Joa. He spit out my foreign name. There weren't any giant bears. This barbarian wizard will do. He would not do. I needed that giant bear. The Legion had returned with plenty of regular, boring animals, but the Nofki was to be the centerpiece. I can't pay for this, I said, avoiding Titus's eyes looking lower. He was clean-shaven as befitted his station. My own salt-and-pepper beard felt all the more damning in contrast. He stepped forward purposefully, one hand resting on his sword's pommel, the other pressing flat against my chest. He pushed me back steadily, following as I retreated, step by step, until I was up against a wall. His breath assaulted me inches away. He's good enough for you, his voice rumbled with warning. You'll take him, and you'll pay full price. Guards! My voice broke. The bastards were standing right there. They marched over, but didn't lift a hand to restrain him. It didn't matter that Sextus paid them to protect me. In the weighing of Roman commander versus Jewish slave, there was no contest. Titus grinned and ran his hand languidly down my chest, his eyes boring into mine. You know what I like about you, Joa? He asked as his fingers traveled below my belly button and hooked around my belt. He pulled at it and my breath caught. His eyes glinted with amusement. 
I don't have to pretend when I'm around you. I can let all the masks drop and just be myself. It's so freeing. I felt his other hand at my waist. I turned my face aside, praying my bladder would hold. Then he slipped his fingers into my coin pouch and fished out all the money I held. I'll be back for the rest. A moment later he was gone, and I was sliding to the floor, trembling. A brief silence before the guards moved away, acting as if nothing had happened. Assholes. I closed my eyes and drew in a shaky breath. I had to focus on the bigger problem. I was back to nothing. I had until noon on the seventh day to find a monster for the Emperor. Impossible. I jumped as cackling laughter exploded nearby. My eyes snapped open on the so-called wizard in the cart, wheezing with glee. The brown nubs of rotted teeth stretched across a face bright with mirth. I glared at him. His mocking eyes met mine, madness flashing behind them. He'd seen everything, and he'd loved it. Go ahead and laugh, I muttered. You'll be dead soon enough. Chapter 2 Andreas Sometimes you get second chances. If you're really lucky, sometimes you even get third chances. But the thing about fourth chances is, nobody ever, ever gets one of those. Not one in a million. This morning, Sextus gave you a fourth chance. You knew it was your last, it was one past your last, and you absolutely could not fuck up again. So a few hours later, standing on the banks of the Tiber River with a hundred other men, panic thunders into your heart when you feel the stirring of the gods within your chest. You inhale sharply, holding your breath to steady yourself. A warning rumble shivers through your mind. You know why. It has to be the grain. The Tiber rushes by on your right, browned with the refuse of Rome. An ox on your side of the river lows plaintively. Harnessed in fours on both banks, the oxen hold great barges still against the current. Ten barges float in weight, riding low in the water under their load. They carry life. Tons of it in bulging sacks. The sun beats down mercilessly on parched earth. Failed fields line the Ostian road, dry wheat fields already wasted to yellow stalks. You stand at the fore of the armed party blocking the road. They're mostly rabble. Less than two dozen are former soldiers, like yourself. I have orders directly from Senator Paulus Pulcher! Squawks a little man at your commander, three paces before you. You aren't touching my grain! The man speaking to your commander looks like a pleb to you, leading a band of thugs, his hair unkempt and his tunic fraying. Exactly the sort of man that would hold life hostage. A merchant. Your sword trembles in its scabbard, your palm itches to take hold of the hilt and draw it out. But you can't fuck this up, so you remain still. Your commander repeats his earlier charges, still holding an official Senate document bearing the seal of Senator Marcus Verus. Something about dodging tariffs and missing permits. In your head, the gods growl in protest. They don't care about legalities. They see only barges full of life straining to reach Rome. They hear tens of thousands of wailing bellies. That much life shouldn't be subject to the vagaries of greed and politics. Fear runs down your spine at what the gods may demand. You cement your gaze onto your commander, praying for the voices to still. You draw strength from Largo, standing rigid at your side. This is your last chance. Sextus made that very clear. You remember the look of weariness that crossed Sextus's face when you entered the office in his home. His visceral disappointment. Oh, Andreas, back again, he asked, shaking his bald head. He'd gone to fat as he aged, but still held the shoulders of a military man. I don't think I can add any more to your father's debt. You only half heard his words. You disliked his office. 
The ceiling stretched too high, the walls leaned too close, and two guards glowered at your back. They carried weapons, you were unarmed. If they turned on you, what chance did you have? You hadn't eaten in too long. You eyed escape routes. Your best bet would be over the desk, past Sextus, into his garden beyond the curtains. I'm here for work, you say. Largo said you need enforcers. You know I'm worth as much as three other men. You're big, several inches taller than most soldiers. You're muscled. Every day you spend hours at the public gymnasiums. You're combat-hardened. You were at the front of every major action in risen Jerusalem. Its tunnels were painted red by your sword. Sextus raised an eyebrow. You certainly are when you're sober and you show up. He leaned back and folded his hands over his belly. Why should I trust you again? Because I need to eat, you thought. The gods torment you with their demands, but do they provide anything to their servant? Even so much as stale bread to keep the hunger pain away. That's just another detail they expect you to take care of on your own. I won't let you down again. I have nowhere else to go. It was the best you could offer. You seem to keep forgetting that, and I'm getting tired of it. Even taking your service into consideration, my patience is wearing thin. At least he acknowledged your military service. Of the men who marched on Jerusalem, less than half were fit to remain in the legion afterwards. Emperor Antoninus Pius allowed any Roman that had marched with Hadrian to leave the legion without punishment, further cementing his title as the Pius. His decision didn't sit well with everyone. But your father needs help repaying that debt, Sextus continued. And on his behalf, I'll give you one final chance. With that, he had Largo take you to Claudius, your commander for the day. Rome is starving! The sniveling voice of the grain shipment's leader jerks you back to the fallow fields by the Tiber. He jabs his finger into Claudius's chest. If you try to stop me, there'll be hell to pay! He leads a sprawl of a hundred or more armed men. They aren't soldiers, but then, neither are most of the men on your side. And your opposition looks well-fed, which can make a big difference. They must have been paid at least partially in food. This shipment is contraband, and you will comply immediately or I'll take it by force. Your commander's voice hardens as his patience wears away. You'll be first into the fray if a struggle breaks out. You stand in one of the ex-legionnaire squads just behind him, nearest the river. You're proud to stand among the soldiers. If a horror erupts here, there will be no screaming panic, no weeping and mayhem, only the precise, martial response of true Roman men. If you die, it will be as a soldier with his brothers, not as a squealing pig. You have no faith in the untrained toughs making up the bulk of your force to contribute anything but blind violence. They'd almost be more useful as healer fodder. You're nothing but thieves, the merchant says, and spits in the dirt. That disrespect shown to a Roman commander is a slap to your face. Your eyes flare, your arms tense, and the gods rally within you, giving you strength. You force them back. Force yourself to wait for orders. Failing at that had cost you your second chance. Claudius regards the man in silence for the span of two breaths. Then he rolls up the senatorial decree. This shipment will go no further. His voice has acquired a biting edge. Cut the first barge loose. The ten barges stretch in a line down the Tiber, each loaded to full capacity with thirty tons of grain. They carry six hundred thousand pounds of grain among them, enough to feed the entire city of Rome for one full day. Two days at half rations, you remind yourself. The city's been at half rations for months. The weight of a furious mountain shifts within you. Unrest flares among the gods. No! echoes in your mind. It's a bluff, you think, placating. Obviously. 
The shabby man's eyes bulge in disbelief. It will founder! He sputters. As your squad moves to the oxen teams, their handlers retreat behind the big animals. We'll lose the barge and the grain! Claudius nods. That is the point. Hand them over to me or lose them entirely. You move in lockstep with seven other soldiers. None of you in uniform, of course, but it's impossible to miss the drilled march. Shields held steady in an unwavering line. You stride past the oxen and draw up beside a rope as thick as your arm. A mob of armed men faces you not a dozen paces away. Your right hand grips your hilt, but no one has yet drawn weapons. You were ordered not to draw first. You feel naked, your half-shield of fig leaf clutched in one hand. You scan the mob, searching for flashing steel, but there are too many hands. You can't keep track of them all. Cut the rope! Claudius orders. Stop them! shouts the shabby merchant. Behind you! An urgent whisper strikes into your mind. When the gods speak, it is misleading to say they use words. Yes, you hear words as if someone nearby is speaking. But words are only symbols meant to represent thoughts. At best, they convey a surface-level approximation of what their speaker intends. Gods have no such limitations. The words of gods are transformative. The knowledge they impart becomes a part of you. Your emotions are transmuted so you feel the message exactly as the gods mean it. When they tell you someone is good, you overflow with warmth towards them. When they tell you someone is plotting against you, you can feel that person's malice seeping out even through their smiling teeth. And when they warn you that someone's behind you, that warning comes with both panic and knowledge already set within. You know one of the handlers hiding behind an ox has moved against you, is even now diving at your back. You find yourself spinning, your sword out. You lash upward before you see your target, reacting to a glimpse of motion. Your blade catches a downward driving wrist and your momentum severs the hand from its owner. You catch a glint of metal, maybe a long dagger, as it arcs into the river. For an instant, you're locked rigid, despite charging war cries at your rear. A boy in his early teens, curly black hair, a screaming mouth, crumples before you, clutching a gushing stump. Peach fuzz on his face, too young to shave, too stupid for this faint. What was he thinking? You don't have time. You spin around, rejoining your squadron. You are needed. The disbelieving eyes of that boy burn in your mind as flashing blades descend from all sides. Noise crashes over you in waves. Thinking becomes a luxury. None of this should be happening. You strike at the vermin before you in a haze. You breathe in air and breathe out fire, smashing men one by one by one. And after a long while, you fall back and collapse to the dirt, gasping for air. Your arms burn, your head spins. You need time. Just a couple minutes. Around you, steel rings against steel and moans rise from the ground. You hadn't heard them before, but they're so loud now. Loud as your ragged breaths. You're so weak. Just another minute. You lick blood from your sword hand, greedy for any nourishment. You lick it clean down past your wrist. Then you rise again, heft your shield, and push your way back to the front. They're counting on you. They, they will, will die, die without, without you. you. Eventually, conscious thought returns. The fog lifts from your mind with a smattering of victory cries. The opposing gang of thugs flees, their weapons abandoned. A few of the younger hirelings on your side give chase, but are quickly called back. You let your shield slip from your grasp and slump into a sitting position, sword across your lap. It is over. You scan the battlefield, the wide road, the ox path, the grassy shoulder of the river, Fifty-ish bodies lay scattered, maybe twenty of them from your side. Many still writhe in the dust. Neither side brought healers. They aren't allowed outside of Rome without a full cohort as an escort. The wounded will have to make do with bandages and pray for a clean recovery. 
You press a hand against the burning cut at your hip, aware of it for the first time. You were lucky. It's only a glancing blow. Claudius approaches you, wiping his blade clean on a rag. Good work, soldier. He pulls a small clay token imprinted with a numeral three from his satchel. You fought like a demon. Present this to Sextus when you collect your pay, and he'll give you a modest bonus. You take it without comment. It is a strange sort of hiss. It is the sound of a soft, steady wind in the forest, the constant susurration of leaves. Or the hiss of a desert snake if it was diffuse and endless. More than anything else, it's the constancy that strikes you, that steady, unbroken sound. You stand on a barge, knife in hand, and watch grain spilling overboard, listening to the hiss of three hundred tons of wheat as they drain away, one pound at a time. The lifeblood of Rome pours over your boots and runs into the filthy river. Andreas, quit slacking! The voice of one of your fellow soldiers, halfway down the barge, dutifully carrying out his part of the massacre. You want another fight? Claudius gave you all of five minutes to gather your strength, then set you to work. Escorting the grain the rest of the way to Rome was impossible, he'd said. Traveling at the pace of oxen towing barges? You wouldn't arrive until well after nightfall. By then, the thugs could return to the port of Ostia, gather reinforcements, and strike back. You would be waylaid by a superior force, and today's deaths would have been for nothing. There was only one way to prevent the smugglers. Claudius calls them smugglers now, though you don't remember him using that term before. From sneering at Roman laws and laughing at Rome's enforcers. Destroy the contraband. A cloud passed over the hired muscle at that. So much grain. Rumblings under breath like distant thunder. Eyes flashing in darkened faces. You prepared for a bloody storm. Claudius asked sharply if this was where they wanted to declare treason against Rome. He demanded to know whether they felt they weren't being paid enough. Then he gestured towards the barges and offered them the pay they needed the most in the currency smothering him. All they could carry for every man there. It was enough. Grain spills from burlap wounds, flowing with that unending hiss. You sweep a mostly empty sack into the river. You plunge your knife into the next sack and pull across its length, watching the grain burst from the tear in a pale gold gush. It's not unlike blood, it's not unlike the spill of crimson from the Jewish boy's back when you'd pulled your javelin from his body, gurgling into the streets of Jerusalem. You'd watched him twitch feebly as his life drained away, your mind empty but for two worthless words. Your mind echoed with those words for weeks, growing louder by the hour, overwhelming you, letting in the gods. Your mind echoes with those same words now. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. The words run together, harsh and buzzing, blurring into something new and insistent. Stop, Stop this. this! Hissed by the gods. Stop, Stop this. this! Stop this! Stop, Stop this. this! They grow heavy, swelling with power as the gods shake off sleep. They wake within you, straining against your internal dams. STOP THIS! Why won't they just shut up? You're following lawful orders. No one you know will starve. What do they expect you to do? How can one man stop this? Two emptied barges spin lazily downriver. They were cut loose after being gutted, their oxen unharnessed and run off. Another sack empties under your knife and falls silent. You sweep it overboard. Stab down, tear across. Yes, you are slacking. You could work three or four stacks at once, like your fellows. You start stabbing and tearing at an increased pace, several bags at once. Up, down, right to left. Repeat twice, then return to the first sack. Push it into the water, 
and begin anew. You have to finish before the gods come into their power. Up, down, right to left. Step, sweep, repeat. Hiss, hiss, all around you. Keep at it. You can't afford to fuck up again. Chapter 3. Marcus Verus Senator Marcus Verus sat frozen, drowning in the Senate Hall. I return to my emperor the first blade of the guard, to continue its divine service. The words came murky to his ears, distorted and unreal. He watched with unblinking eyes as the outgoing commander of the Praetorian Guard, Gaius Maximus, presented the emperor with his sword of office. Marcus's oldest friend was being stripped of his title before him, and all Marcus could think about was that his son should be here. Quintus Drusus Verus should be at his side. The world came to Marcus in a series of still images. Gaius striding away from the imperial dais, down the central aisle that bisected the high-ceilinged senate hall, his military sandals clicking crisply against the marble tile. Enclosed by six long rows of seats, three on either side of him, rising in three tiers, each holding a watching senator. Those on Marcus's side, grim. Those on Paulus Pulcher's side, smug. Paulus Pulcher, right ankle crossed over his left knee, locked eyes with Marcus. The young leader of the New Hedonists faction sat directly across the aisle from Marcus. A smirk painted his punchable face. The ridiculous fringes of his robes dangled from every seam. He'd made his name as Rome's curator of grain and played up his image as a man of the people, deathly concerned for the poor and forgotten. The listless young men of the city made themselves preening fools imitating his style. To his right stood General Decimus Aetius, a pillar in hesitation, having just risen from his seat. With Marcus's focus on Paulus's mug, he saw only a stiff uniform from shoulders to knees, acting as an intruding frame. A shift in the Senate. Now General Decimus Aetius stood before the Emperor at the center of the hall, so close that Marcus could touch him with his cane. The general of the German legion, Legio I Minervia, looked more like a lapdog than a general. A weak chin, a hairline receding to the crown of his head. It was for his sake that the first cohort of the German legion had returned to Rome, acting as honor guard. The additional 800 fighting men would reside in the city for the duration of the anniversary games. That new dynamic on the game board should have enlivened Marcus. Instead, their presence drained his spirit. All he could see was what was missing. Everywhere he looked, he saw his son. Quintus should have been with them. Quintus had been unwilling to take a military tribuneship at first. He'd been influenced by the corruption of Paulus Pulcher and his new hedonists. He wore his hair shamefully long. He argued with Marcus that a tribuneship was no longer necessary under Emperor Pius. Not to hold office under that shrinking hypocrite, no, Marcus had rebuked him. But it is necessary for anyone who expects to command the respect of his peers, or face his ancestors without shame. It would tear open my heart to discover I've raised a coward rather than a man. I don't know how I could look your mother in the eyes again. Quintus stayed silent, eyes downcast. Son. Marcus let warmth draw over his voice again and placed a hand on Quintus's shoulder. Everyone dies. But we can decide what we die for. A Roman man uses his life to build great things. Things which endure beyond death. He does not waste it in self-gratification like a common pleb. Marcus clenched down on the throbbing ache in his chest. He tore his eyes from General Decimus. He focused on the side of the Emperor's face, tracing individual curled hairs. They shone with oil. Emperor Pius had never served in the military, had never developed the habit of shaving. He spoke words that came indistinct and jumbled to Marcus's ears. He pressed the sword of office into Decimus's hands, 
the sword that had just been stripped from Gaius. Marcus's eyes dropped to General Decimus's hands, hands that lacked the calluses of a warrior. Where had those hands been when Marcus's son had needed them? Marcus fought the incoming deluge, the sea of pressure crushing his chest. Decimus's duty had been to protect Rome's holdings, not to tend the lives of his soldiers. He spent the lives under his command as needed. Rome was eternal and sacrosanct. Men were small, fleeting things, and there was no purpose in a life lived for fleeting things. These words ran through Marcus's mind every night. Words to comfort. Words to inspire. Words that had grown teeth. After uncounted hours, Marcus would rise and wander his manor in the dark. It hurt to think. It hurt to breathe. Every night the wine cask looked a little bit more tempting. And what had it all been for? Marcus watched his plans unraveling like gutted intestines at Paulus's feet. Applause broke out, cracking through Marcus's fugue. Decimus rose and strapped the sword to his waist. Emperor Pius stepped back, looking relieved to be done with a chore. Slaves appeared from the ends of the room, carrying gilded cups and decanters filled with wine. Let us toast our new Praetorian Prefect! Emperor Pius proclaimed, finally relaxing as he raised a goblet. He hadn't even waited for the Senate session to formally conclude. Marcus stiffened as a hand touched his shoulder. Thank you, no, he spat out. Sir, I have a message. Titus has arrived at your manor. He awaits your return at your leisure. The drowning tide rose higher. Marcus closed his eyes and sat for several heartbeats, listening to the movement and chatter around him as wine gurgled into cups. Then he picked up his cane and forced himself to his feet. Tonight he would see his son laid to rest. As night fell, Marcus stood in the center garden of his manor, cloaked in the shadows of his fruit trees. The sky above bled into a deep purple, pierced in several places by the first pinpricks of starlight. His fountain's low murmur pushed away the lingering sounds of the city and left him to bleed in peace. His wife stood at his side, holding his hand. Domita was a stately woman. The first creases now showing on her face highlighted her elegance rather than diminished her beauty. She gave him long minutes, waiting for the moon to rise over the manor walls. Are you ready? she asked once the shimmer of moonlight gleamed in the fountain's waters. Marcus nodded. Domita unwound her fingers from his and left softly, a panther in her home. Moments later, the tread of boots approached from behind. Marcus turned to take in a tall young man standing at attention, his short hair thick and black as night. Titus, the commander of the German first cohort. He'd often acted as Quintus's second in command. An attractive man with chiseled features and a proud physique. Quintus said the men adored him. It was plain that Quintus had adored him too, from Titus's prominence in his letters. Now that Titus stood before him, Marcus saw that Quintus's interest had been well-placed. Honored father, the letters always started. A proper greeting written in a strong hand, followed by news of the occupation and queries into the health of his mother and siblings. Then the meat of the matter, alliances and politics. At first, Titus was merely noted, but by the time Quintus had been at his command for half a year, Word of Titus formed a sizable portion of each correspondence. Last month, we finally rooted out the last of the barbarians holed up in their black forest. Yet another black forest. It seems we find one near every village. You'd think they could come up with more original names. The battle was fierce, and we lost many good men. Unfortunately, we slew the barbarian chieftain in the fighting, but we lamed and captured alive the beast he rode. It was a monstrous bear, more than twice the size of any bear I've seen before, with six legs and a single long horn rising from its head. Its paws were matted black with blood. When Titus saw the beast, surrounded by our dead, his face darkened into angry resolve. Titus knows a bit about these barbarians. 
You'd think General Decimus would too. He's been out here long enough. But Decimus doesn't take interest in the locals. Titus says this is a mistake, as so many of our recruits now come from the surrounding area. He always eats with the men, and jumps into the banter. So it was Titus who realized what we had in our hands when the men captured that bear. Apparently it's a venerated beast, a symbol of the barbarian's martial prowess. The next day, when we marched into the barbarian town they called their capital, we didn't just bring the chieftain's body for display. Titus dragged in the bear and took it before their town hall. He looped a thick rope noose around its neck and our men hoisted the bear over the main entrance. It struggled massively. I was worried the hall would collapse under its thrashings. The barbarians watched, grim-faced, as life fled the beast. There were only the old and the children left, and a handful of women. The soldiers cheered wildly, and Titus led them in ransacking the town hall cellar. We feasted on pork and beer that night. Titus left the bear hanging from the town hall for days until the general arrived and ordered it cut down. This has made Decimus unpopular with the soldiers, but if he realizes it, he doesn't care. We haven't had any problems in that area since, and our recruitment has increased significantly. For myself, I've taken to eating with Titus and the men as well. News of Quintus's death arrived early in the morning, almost four months ago. A cloudless day. Immediately Marcus cleared his house of all visitors. He withdrew into his office and disinterred all his son's old letters. He'd kept every one locked up safe. He reread them in order, lingering over every line. He turned them with gentle, trembling hands, careful not to damage them. Two years and two months of letters. When he finished reading them he paused, eyes unfocused, hands resting on vellum. His son was etched into those pages. Every time he read them, his son's thoughts and emotions were recapitulated in his mind. A faint echo of Quintus lived again for the briefest moment, a wavering reflection in dark waters. He flipped to the first letter and began reading again. When Domita came with food, he nodded silent acknowledgement and ignored it. When it grew dark, he brought in candles. When he found himself waking up, after unknown minutes or hours, he resumed at the last line he could remember and continued on. Every time he came to the last page, he flipped back to the start and began again. After a while, the words became strange sounds in his head, their meanings murky, bringing up swells of emotion that threatened to drown him. The ink entered him through his eyes and laced his bones with black weight. He became the vellum his son the pen. He flipped the pages over, began again, reading the blank spaces where the words had been. When he awoke in a sickbed the following evening, Domita had refused to let him near the letters for a week. Now he only read one each day. During those readings, in the theater of Marcus's mind, Quintus's affection for Titus had become Marcus's own. Seeing the real man before him was odd, his form made of flesh rather than ink. He took up space, depth as well as width, and looked back into Marcus just as Marcus looked into him. His son had called this man brother. At a first glance, he looked the part. Drifting just below the sorrow, Marcus felt something akin to a smile stirring in his chest, if smiles could be made of warm knives. Titus carried an urn in both hands. He presented it to Marcus and bowed his head deeply. Sir, was all he said. Marcus accepted his son's ashes. Then he closed his eyes and waited, letting the churning foam of grief subside to a navigable level. When he judged himself ready, he opened his eyes, took a breath, and began the final leg of his son's journey. He gathered his two daughters and his grandson and led them through the heavy front doors. In the dark street outside, a small entourage held torches. Marcus recognized them as sons of his most influential and important clients, sent tonight as a show of respect. Further back lurked the professional mourner he'd retained. Together with Titus and four Varus houseguards, the group formed a small procession. 
Marcus continued on, letting them fall in behind him. The streets were quiet tonight, the mob quelled by the influx of soldiers and the promise of tomorrow's feasts. His cane punctuated every other step on the stone walkways with an echo. He followed the same path they'd used during the public funeral procession months ago. That had been an extravagant affair, with hundreds of mourners and performers. Incense choked the air, and the braying of trumpets and crashing of cymbals could be heard for miles. The pageantry went on for hours, with an oration at the Forum, and a feast outside the mausoleum. Marcus had walked at its center, his body rigid, his head held stiff. Anything less grand would have been a slight to his image, and an insult to Quintus. A paltry funeral procession could be interpreted as Marcus disowning his son. Even the thought of that made him grow hot. He had spared no expense that day. This, however, was not a funeral procession. This affair was simply to inter Quintus's ashes with his ancestors. They walked in near silence, accompanied only by the mourners' slow lute notes and impassioned murmurings of poetry. Marcus limped through the emptying streets at a reasonable pace, alone with his thoughts. Marcus had done the right thing when he'd pushed Quintus into his tribuneship. Rome's strength was in Roman men, not barbarian recruits and foreign allies. The new hedonists thought they could live on the spoils of empire without any labor or sacrifice. Marcus would not acquiesce. He demanded his son fulfill the duty to the common good. Every parent should do the same. But there were too many shirkers, too many who saw that they could dodge the risk of losing their own child by counting on their neighbors to do their part. Marcus and his traditionalist supporters were buckling under the strain of holding Rome up on their own. Already the legions at the edge of the empire consisted of more barbarian troops than Roman soldiers, more loyal to their purses than the eternal city they'd never seen. Marcus understood the new hedonists' sickness. He craved their simplistic morality. Protect the ones you love from danger. Do not think of the consequences two generations down the line when Rome is held by foreign powers or sacked by treacherous barbarians. Simply be relieved that you did not send your son to his death and let the rest be damned. Marcus wanted his fucking son back. He hated the cowards, hated their besotted sons and wanton daughters. He should let them sink into their own filth. Let the corruption pile up around them until the gods themselves choked on the stench. He'd be long dead by then, when the last of the good men had died or fled or just forgot to stay, and the wails of the craven filled the skies as society disintegrated about them. Everyone reaped what they sowed. Let the hedonists reap their rotten harvest. Their procession approached the southeastern Capena Gate. Both inner and outer doors stood perpetually open, as Rome had long overgrown the confines of the Servian Wall. Beyond the gate, Marcus glimpsed a long line of wagons and carts, finally allowed into the city now that the sun had set. They creaked with hundreds of tons of supplies. Cloth for Rome's tailors, slaves for her households. The city would absorb this fare and digest it during the daylight hours, turning it into the tools and arts of civilization. Above the gate rushed the Marcia Aqueduct, thrumming with a small river of lifeblood. Rome was an entity with a beating heart. Each night was a single drawn-in breath, each day a single exhalation. Marcus lived within a massive being that spanned centuries, a god sprawled across the earth. He would live and die as part of her body, in her service. He couldn't stomach the thought of her withering away under the hedonist's neglect. The urn grew heavy, nestled in the crook of Marcus's right arm. Quintus was the third son he had outlived. The life flame of Rome was demanding ever more, and the burden kept falling on the same too few shoulders. Something had to be done. Entering the gate, there came a momentary silence as the dirge ended. Croaking night insects mixed with the sound of posted Praetorian guardsmen collecting entrance taxes. 
Behind him rose the voice of his grandson, now six years old, suddenly exposed by the calm. Can I have a coin for the beggars, Grandma? May I? Damata corrected him. The faint clink of her coin purse preceded the first plucked notes of the next movement, accompanying Ovid's consolation. Marcus looked back to watch Tiberius patter over to a beggar in a dark corner of the alleyway, a coin in each of his small hands. He had inherited his father's good heart. He'd seen his father for the last time at four years old, yet he acted as if Quintus had taught him his philosophy of generosity. The boy dropped his first coin into one beggar's bowl, then hurried to another with his second, full of enthusiasm. It was remarkable the things that bred true. Tiberius was Marcus's responsibility now. Marcus had a duty. He'd begun his rescue of Rome, and he would see it through. Rest came in death, and not before. Marcus scanned the rows of wagons as they passed. Several were piled with sacks of grain, feeding the unending hunger of the city's many mouths. But not nearly as many as there used to be. Good. Even after months of neglect, his plan had not fallen apart. That showed it had been a good plan, simple and sturdy, and entrusted to reliable friends. The loss of Gaius's position as Praetorian Prefect was a setback, but they still had momentum. A cleansing river still came thundering down the channel Marcus had dug to sweep clean the halls of the Senate and the Imperial Palace itself. If Paulus thought he could direct it so easily, he was in for a surprise. The procession passed onto the Appian Way, one of the first arteries of Rome. Bitterly, Marcus considered the changed game board. The emperor had been worried enough to order General Decimus to bring 800 of his own troops from Germania, an honor guard, to discourage dissension among the Praetorian Guard at the ouster of their beloved prefect. It was a good move, which meant it had been orchestrated by Paulus Pulcher, likely in its entirety. But Marcus had something Paulus lacked. Marcus had years in the military. Marcus knew that rank was only one aspect of command. Men's loyalty had to be won, not demanded. He clenched his son's urn tightly in his arm. Just a few paces behind Marcus walked a man that had earned the respect of the German Legion soldiers. A man who called Quintus brother who had cared enough about him to travel from Germania and deliver his ashes personally into Marcus's hands. If Quintus could speak now, Marcus suspected he'd confirm that it was Titus that held the true loyalty of the German first cohort. Paulus and Emperor Pius were not nearly as secure as they believed. The mourner had not yet reached the end of consolation when the group came to a stop before the Varus Mausoleum, just outside the city. A row of Varus ancestors, full-sized and carved in marble, stood sternly at the side of the great road. Just behind them, the mausoleum's stone doors had been unsealed in advance of Marcus's arrival. A guard stood at the threshold, more an honorary position than due to any need. The roads were well patrolled this close to Rome. Titus, come with me. Marcus said in a tone that made it clear no one else was welcome inside. I don't have a free hand for a torch. Together they advanced carefully into the crypt. The tight walls consisted entirely of sepulchral nooks, thick with the urns of the long dead. Torchlight surged around dusted pottery, probed innumerable corners, spurring unruly shadows into dizzying patterns. This would be tricky. Up until now, Marcus had only involved his most trusted friends in his plan, those whom he knew hated Emperor Pius's slide into decadence and corruption as much as he did. He knew little of Titus, and had never considered recruiting him. One didn't involve anyone in a conspiracy to dethrone the Emperor unless he was vital. But now Gaius had been neutralized, and Paulus Pulcher moved quickly to consolidate his power. Rome teetered. Marcus's last son was dead, and the world hung upside down over his head like a sword ready to fall. They were all damned if he didn't act. He would have to take a risk. Marcus limped through a doorway narrow enough that he had to angle his shoulders into a room where most of the nooks stood empty. Were you there when my son died? 
Marcus asked, taking the last steps to Quintus's final resting place. No, Titus answered from behind. I was pacifying one of the unruly border villages. I returned the day after it happened. The officers' quarters were still in ruins as the men were repairing the palisade. None had slept yet. A single monstrosity did all that. That's what they say. Larger than several villas and writhing in and out of existence, whatever that means. It left no body after they killed it. The locals call it a Naragan set. There are many records of accounts, if you want to read them. No. Marcus heard many of the bodies had been pulped, every bone crushed to splinters. He didn't want to know the details. Did you make the barbarians pay for their actions? Dearly. There was a ring of nasty satisfaction in the voice. Marcus nodded. He set the urn into its niche, beside the urns of Quintus's two brothers. The first urn, a small one, for the infant Marcus Annius Verus IV. They'd called him Marcus Aurelius, their golden one. The second urn, larger, for Numerius, who fought sickness his whole life and finally succumbed at twelve years old. Now the third for Quintus, the largest urn of all. Three clay vessels, growing in height like steps, were all that remained of his sons. That weight ground down on Marcus again, threatening to smother his resolve. He cast about for a distraction. How goes the subduing of Germania? he asked. For long moments, silence lingered behind him. Then a rustling sound. Marcus turned to see Titus on one knee, head bowed. Sir, maybe I shouldn't be saying this, but I was very close with your son and... Sir, the Emperor is strangling us. I don't think he cares about us out at the edges anymore. We... that is, I... Titus looked up and met Marcus's gaze directly. His eyes held fire, burning with a passion that Marcus hadn't felt in his own chest in months. It stoked the warmth within him in sympathy. A memory of Quintus came unbidden, his son proudly marching north to Germania to earn his station, to make new allies for the family, strong, determined men. Titus gripped his right fist in his left hand in a manner more akin to anger than pleading. Quintus's voice cried out in triumph in Marcus's mind, as if he knew the words that were coming next. Sir, something must be done about this emperor! Well, that made things easier. Okay, that's it. You can read along at whatliesdreaming.com as chapters are published every week, or you can buy the full thing in its entirety right now at Amazon or any other ebook seller. And if you're interested in maybe hearing more of this, fill out the little survey that's linked in the show notes and on the website. And again, thank you for everything. It's been a long and wondrous journey.